right, good morning. Once again, how is everyone doing? Good, good. I, when, when Jess Stevens was, was doing that transition, I was trying to figure out what movie is he talking about? And then he said balloons, and, and I thought about up. Yeah, and then speaking of dad jokes, Peter texted me and my wife one day, and he said, guys, I, I threw up in the toilet. And my first response is like, I'm at the church. Which toilet did you throw up in? And then he texts me a picture of the DVD up in the toilet. So, terrible dad joke. Evan's point has been proven. Thank you. Welcome to the Springs. Uh, if this is your first time here, that's what we do, and it's awesome. Um, so, we want you to be a part of this. We want you to be a part of this family. So, in the seat back behind you, there's a connection card. If you fill that out and turn it in, uh, we have a welcome, welcome gift for you. You want to shake your hand and get to know you. Um, so as we transition into the word, we find ourselves in this series called The Gospel is for Everyone. Now, one thing that I absolutely love when I read the scriptures and I see the way Jesus interacts with people is that his interactions with people is so diverse. I remember when I first started reading the scriptures, I kind of assumed that everybody was the same person. I had no cultural context for how to read the scriptures, so I just thought everyone was uh, Jewish or everyone was like Jesus. But what I quickly came to find out is that the people that Jesus interacted with most of the time did not look like Jesus, had nothing in common with Jesus, and was kind of puzzling. Uh, Jesus chose to interact with Samaritan women who were uh, culturally on disconnected from him. He chose to interact with Roman centurions who were the enemy of the time. He interacted with zealots and prostitutes and lepers. And one thing that I find absolutely amazing about Jesus's interactions is that he puts on display this idea that we're trying to communicate, is that his message, his love, this amazing God wants to be in relationship with everyone, not just with people who look like us, with people who think like us, who share the same preference, but he desires to be with everyone, and this message that he brings is for everyone. And so where we find ourselves today is in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at two specific verses. The first verse has been described as the heartbeat of what we do by Reach Records. Anybody know that one? How's it go, Evan? All I need is one sixteen. No, I ain't got that. Yeah, I'm not a rapper. I'm not a rapper. But Evan wasn't one. Thaddeus once was. Side story. Uh, and then the second verse has been described as the highest mountain peak in the Book of Romans. It's been described as the verse that converted an Augustinian monk who hated the righteousness of God to becoming this verse that moved him and converted him um, during his pursuit of God. So will you please open with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. I ask, God, that as we open up these scriptures, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, God, in a powerful way, Lord. 
where we not only read the scriptures with our minds, God, but we would be convicted to live them out with our lives. Lord, let this word fall on good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's one very important word that presents itself in verse 17 that I want to quickly highlight. And this word is righteousness. Now, righteousness can seem kind of like a, maybe an outdated word. Uh, if you've been through the Bible, uh, it, it shows up really frequently, this word righteous. Um, and what I want to uh, define real quick is, is what the Bible means by this word righteousness when we look at this verse. So here's some simple definitions. One is righteousness is the, the Bible standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word. Uh, Another definition for righteousness is a state of moral perfection. You might have heard that righteousness can be defined as right standing with God. Uh, In other words, that when we've reached this state of moral perfection, looking like God in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, we're then righteous like God. The only problem is that man is not naturally righteous. But what I want to do with the remaining time that I have with you is I want to make this case that this word righteousness is not just some outdated word that describes the character of God. Rather, righteousness is a term that is used to describe your identity. When we understand righteousness is not only God's standard of moral perfection, but it is a core part of our identity, it changes the way we live and relate to God. And here's why I believe this, because uh, belief affects behavior. I firmly believe that there's a strong relationship between our identity and behavior. Uh, So what you believe about yourself will affect how you pursue relationships with the world and with others around you. What you believe about yourself will influence the way that you live. And so here are a few simple examples of how belief affects behavior. Here's one in my own personal life. You might have heard this story. When I was a kid, I used to play soccer in the backyard. This was probably like 10, 11, 12. And I believed in my mind that when I was playing soccer in the backyard, that recruiters were watching me. Like I, I, I thought that they would be looking through the fence hole or that there were satellites in space just zooming in on my activity. And I thought to myself, oh, People are watching me, so let me play really good. So as a kid, I would run up and down the yard, pretend to score goals, set up scenarios where, like, I was the superstar, and then I kind of would, like, look up to the sky and, like, thumbs up it, you know? Like, I I believed in my mind that I was being watched, and so my behavior adjusted. Uh, That's silly, but it was true for me. Uh, Another example is, is this. If maybe you consider yourself a shy person. If you consider yourself a shy person who doesn't do well around crowds, you'll limit yourself to that identity. So what will end up happening is that you might end up avoiding spaces and places that conflict with that view of yourself. Your belief about yourself affects the way that you behave and live out your life. Here's another example from psychology today. It says this, research suggests that while guilt, feeling that you did a bad thing, can motivate self-improvement, Shame, feeling like you are a bad person, tends to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. For example, maybe you're a student and you're in school and you believe that you're just not smart enough to pass this class. That, that you, There's nothing that you can do in your own effort 
to do well in this class. So what will end up happening is that you'll convince yourself that what's the point of studying? What's the point of showing up to office hours? What's the point of staying up late, going to the library? I'm going to fail this class anyways, so why even try? And so what ends up this belief about, man, I'm going to fail, actually ends up coming true because you've conformed your behavior to that belief. Another example is maybe you're at work and you've convinced yourself in your mind that that you'll never be promoted, that you'll never advance, that you'll never... um, work yourself out of this place into a better position. So what it'll end up happening is that you'll say, well, if this place is a glass ceiling and that there's no other place for me to go from here, you'll end up maybe not working as hard. You won't perform like you should. You might be a little bit lazier, slack off, show up late, and not care about your performance because you've convinced yourself in your mind that this is where I am, and that there's no other place to advance from there. And so how does this relate to spirituality? I'm strongly convinced that the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think God thinks about us influences the way that we live, influences the way that we pursue God, the way that we experience joy and freedom. Because if you believe that God only loves you or treats you well, based off your good behavior, then what will end up happening is that you'll spend a lifetime trying to earn God's love through your good works and deeds. If you believe that God doesn't love you because you can't figure out how to stop sinning, you can't figure out how to overcome this thing that you know you're not supposed to be doing, you'll eventually burn out because you'll grow weary trying not to sin and resent God for being so difficult to please. However, if you view yourself as the righteousness of God in Christ, it changes everything. Martin Luther went on record saying that he hated this verse, despised it. He hated God for it. Why? Because the way that he was thinking about the righteousness of God, he thought to himself that his life had to match God's righteousness, God's holiness, so that he could be loved and approved by God. And so it took him to this dangerous place where where he would go to really extreme standards to try to conform his flesh to not be so sinful. In fact, story goes that he would sleep outside without a blanket to punish his flesh. He would beat himself for being so sinful in his mind and then resent God for being so difficult to please. And yet one day, in this castle tower, I believe, he reads this verse all over again, and the Holy Spirit comes into the room and illuminates his mind and illuminates his understanding. And he says this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And in that moment, he became a converted Christian. What was once this verse that he could not stand became the verse that God used to reconcile all of his doubt and bring him into the kingdom of God. And so the question is, what did Luther see in this text, in this verse, that took him from a man that hated God 
and his high standards to having this life-changing moment and experiencing peace, love, and freedom. What is in this text that made a well-studied man of the word of God, fluent in the languages of the Bible, experience such a powerful conversion? And how does this understanding of righteousness change the way we live? I have three points that will help guide us as we journey towards understanding righteousness and these two verses. Number one, the quest. Number two, the transfer. And number three, the outcome. Number one, the quest. Many of you know that my wife is from North Carolina, uh, and this past holidays, we spent Christmas there. And so one thing that I love to do when we're at the house that she grew up in is that I just love to explore her grandma's house so that I can get a better picture of who my wife was growing up. Like, what was she into? What was she interested in? And so as I'm in her sister's room, I see this pile of computer games, literally from like the floor all the way up to my knee. And I'm like, oh, Haley's super interested in, into PC games. And then Morgan looks at me and she says, no, 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 those are all mine. And I'm like, no way. She's like, yes. My wife growing up was a hardcore PC gamer. Yes. Can you believe that? She told me that she would literally spend hours playing Nancy Drew and Sims and random games like RuneScape that I never heard of. And my mind was blown. I was like, who are you? So I thought that it would be cute if I installed one of her computer games that she used to play on my laptop and then she installed it on hers so that we could play this game together and I could have like a better understanding of who my wife was like as an angsty middle schooler. And so one of these games was called RuneScape. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's an old one. And so the whole point of this game, I'm not too familiar, but you have this character and you're, it's kind of like a medieval renaissance setting and you go from like village to village and it's, it's really strange because like you cut trees and you fish and you know, you have this life in this game and she said she would spend hours playing this and I just did not understand like the point of this and she was like going crazy. And so one thing that you do in this game, you go on these missions called quests and so what a quest is, is that you arrive at this village and you might run into this character and the, the character will say, hey, will you go on this mission for me? And the mission can be something silly like go to the next town and retrieve some flour so I can bake this cake. And so like, all right, I got to do it. So you go to the next town and you, you get the flour and you're on this quest and this mission and then you bring it back to the character and then the character rewards you for your good action, for going on this mission. Now, what I find interesting to notice is that when it comes to our relationship with God, sometimes we have this view of the Lord. Like, let me go on this quest to pursue something bigger than myself, to search for this one thing that will make me feel good about myself and also make me feel like I'm in a good place with God. Let me go search for this elusive idea or feeling or lifestyle that's out there so that once I become this person, once I have the thing, I can come back to God and give it to him. And then we expect God to say, I love you. Thank you. Here's your reward. Now, this idea is totally countercultural to what the Bible says. In fact, many of us are on this journey right now, 
on this quest, trying to find our righteousness, trying to find the one thing, the one lifestyle that'll make us feel like I'm in a good place with God, that'll give us the ultimate sense of satisfaction satisfaction and pleasure and feeling while at the same time making us feel like we're in a good place with God. And what the Lord has revealed to us is that he's already given us his love, his approval, his favor, his blessings in Christ. And we need to search no more than gaze into the eyes of our risen Savior, Jesus. We're all in pursuit of righteousness, whether you know it or not. We're all searching for that one thing that will make us feel like we're in a right place with God and with ourselves. Romans 6.16 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? In other words, you're either pursuing sin, and that brings death, or you're pursuing God, and that brings life. And what I find interesting to notice is that what you pursue, if you're not careful, has the power to enslave you. When someone or something other than God is the king of your life, is your main pursuit, that thing Become, can become a slave. You can become a slave to that thing. For example, if you need a relationship or if you need to be married to be happy, you become the slave of relationships or marriage. You will feel miserable all the time if you are single. You make bad relationship decisions and end up dating terrible people and doing foolish things. If you have to be successful to find fulfillment, you become a slave of success. You overwork. You might get jealous of other successful people. And success will drive and enslave you until it destroys families, your health, or our very lives. Maybe you feel like you have to have some sort of physical, have some sort of physical escape to release stress or feel relaxed. That too can quickly enslave you. It starts off as an enjoyable experience that you feel like you can control, but it ends up being a tyrant that controls you. That type of escape can vary. It can be pornography, drugs, alcohol, overeating, but the pattern is the same. It begins as something you can control, but then you begin to crave it, and then it begins to control you. You are either enslaved to something that brings life, a relationship with God, or you're a slave to sin, and sin brings death. And everyone is on this quest to internalize, to capture that one thing that will add value to your life. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's fully God and he's fully human, and he makes what seems to be an outrageous claim by declaring that there isn't power in anything else to satisfy you, to make you whole, to bring purpose and meaning to your life, to make you righteous before the Lord. There is power in nothing else. There isn't power in your efforts, your work, success, money, influence, church attendance, or even Bible knowledge. Those things cannot complete you or satisfy you. 
So then if there's no power in what this world has to offer, and our sense of righteousness can only come from God, how do we get in on this? This brings us to our second point, the transfer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love other translations that say, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. I find that to be a more appropriate translation because you are made righteous. You don't become righteous out of your own effort and your own work. The Lord makes us righteous because of who Christ is. And so when Christ dies on the cross, he not only takes away our sins, but he gives us his life. The reason why this is really important is because if all Christ did on the cross was take away our sins, then all that means for us is that we've avoided a death penalty to hell. For the wages of sin is death. But Christ in his great love for us not only dies for our sins, but he gives us his life. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 4, the Old, Te- uh, the Old Testament priest would, would bring out a, a sheep or a lamb that was blameless without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. And, and, and what would happen is that the priest would lay hands on this lamb, and all the sins of the people would be transferred to this lamb. And then this lamb would become the sacrificial offering that would uh, make the people right with God. Now, what happens here is that there's a single transfer. All of the sins of the people are transferred to the sheep, the lamb. But the lamb has no power to transfer back God's power, God's righteousness, God's life. When Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, he takes upon himself all of the sins, all of the guilt, all of the shame that has made us unrighteous has made us unholy and separated us from the Lord, and he takes it upon himself. And then at the same time, he transfers to us his perfect, holy, righteous life, so that in Christ we can become, we are made the righteousness of God. So now the Lord looks at me, looks at you, if you are in Christ, not as sinful, imperfect, separated from him, but he looks at you the way that he looks at his son. Holy, righteous, perfect, favored by God. The life that Christ lives and the life that Christ gives is the only one that has the power to look at sin and shame and say, you have no control over me. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It has the power to conquer sin. It has the power to make things right. Righteousness is more than an outdated word or a familiar word in our Christian context. Righteousness is our identity, and we all desperately need it, and it can only be found in no other place except in Christ, and it can only be received by faith. When something like guilt and shame is transferred to the cross, it is no longer in the original location that it was once found in. 
For example, um, if I am looking at my, my bank account and um, I had a bad budgeting month, what will end up happening is I might transfer $100 from my savings account to my checkings account to make up for this deficit. I'm glad my wife's not here because my fault. Um, but what ends up happening is that this amount of money is no longer found in the original location. It's now in the checkings account. So I cannot look at my savings and say, where did you go and why aren't you there? I have no right to do that because it's been moved from one location to another. When you are transferred maybe from one job location to another, what ends up happening is that you cease to exist at the original location you were transferred from, and now you are in this totally new location. When sin and guilt and shame is transferred from my life to the cross, it is no longer found here in the original location. It has been moved to the cross, and it ceases to exist in my account. And then there's another transfer that happens where God's righteousness and God's goodness is transferred to me. And so now when I look at the account of my life, it says righteous, holy, loved, identified with Christ, and nothing else. And so the power of sin and the power of shame and guilt and all the things that once separated me from God no longer exist in my life in the sense that I cannot be identified with it because Christ's life has been transferred to me and now I'm fully identified with who he is and what he has done. And when we look at Christ, we do not see sin, guilt, and shame. We see the perfect peace of God. We see the presence of God here on earth. We see his love, his grace, his mercy. We see his power and security. We see his life lived on earth as it is in heaven, and that's the life that he chooses to give to me. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, what I've been gleaning from and and, and researching lately is that eternal life is not just a quantity, it's a quality. And eternal life is the life that Christ lived on earth, free of shame, free of guilt, free of condemnation. And that's the quality of life that's transferred to us that we can have because we've been made the righteousness of God. And what's interesting about this is that this happens all at once. Righteousness is transferred all at once. It's not given in pieces. It's not like, okay, I became a Christian. I I, I had a good day. I'm a little bit more righteous. I had a bad day. Take a couple steps back. The next day, you're just really awesome. And then you take a few steps more forward. And, you know, the next day you take a couple steps back. That's not how righteousness works. Righteousness is given to you all at once. Because you do not partially come into Christ. You completely come into Christ. And then you become completely identified, not with your own life, but with his. And so now your life becomes about loving God and living for him and not necessarily building an empire with your good works so that you can be accepted by God. But now that you're the righteousness of God, you're liberated to live a righteous lifestyle, the life of Christ. And this is good news because God does not wait for you to fully become something so that he can say, yes, I love you. Now come follow me. 
God doesn't wait for you to have these moments of victory so that he can, you know, start checking his list off of, okay, he's, he's good here. She's good here. Let's just wait for him or her to just exhibit this behavior, this quality, and then, and then we can start doing something. No, God declares who you are the moment that you become a follower of Jesus, and then your life becomes about living out what he's called you to be, the righteousness of God. He declares who you are the moment you commit your life to him, and now your life becomes about becoming what he's declared you to be. And this happens from faith and proceeds with the life of faith. You are what you are, not because of your efforts, because of your accomplishments, your influence, your personality. You are who you are because of the grace of God and who Jesus is. So how do we receive this? I love that the Bible reveals this to us. The giver always sets the terms for how the gift ought to be received. A uh, practical example is that Evan and Annika set the terms for how Pastor Peter and Elisa were going to receive this gift in such a way that they had no idea that they were going to receive a gift, but they were called up and received the gift. The giver, God, has set the terms and has said that this righteousness, this life, can only be received through faith. That apart from faith, there is no other way to receive righteousness. Faith is what unites us with Christ and all that God has for us in him. When God sees faith in Christ, he sees union with Christ. And when he sees union with Christ, he sees righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. Paul, here's a quote from Steve Lawson. He says, Paul writes that true faith is always from faith to faith. That is, it is impossible for faith to go from faith to no faith. Faith can only move forward. Faith can only advance from faith to faith. It is impossible to go from faith to apostasy. It is impossible to go from faith to unfaith. True faith can only go in one direction because it is a powerful work of God in the soul. Charles Spurgeon once said, Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never once fell out of the ark. That is true, genuine faith. We will trip and fall down in the Christian life, but we will never fall away from Christ. It is not a matter of our holding on to God. It is a matter of him holding on to us. God keeps our faith active and upheld by his grace. And this leads us to our last point, the outcome. What is the outcome of being made the righteousness of God? What is the outcome of living life from this belief of identifying ourselves the way that God sees Christ is the way that God sees me. How does that influence my behavior? How does that influence my relationship with others, my relationship with the world, and my relationship with him? The gospel has power because of what it reveals. It reveals that humans can experience life with God, and this life brings peace. It brings security. It brings freedom. Because we've been given the life of Christ. 
I believe that's why Paul says in, in Romans 1.16, which is, uh, has been used in, in, in many great contexts as this evangelism encouraging verse, like, let's go share the gospel because we're not ashamed of it. And then the question becomes, well, well how do I get to that place? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. My conclusion is that the reason why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel is that because he fully believed in his heart, mind, and life that he was the righteousness of God. So that means that all of his shame, all of his guilt, all of his fear ceased to exist in his earthly reality because it's been transferred to Christ. And the reality that he lives in is this heavenly reality, that he is more than a conqueror, that he has resurrection power living inside of him, that nothing can separate him from the love of God, and that there's no sacrifice too great for God. And so I believe Paul was living life from that place. And that's why he can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I am the righteousness of God. And that there's no place for shame or for guilt or for condemnation to influence the way that I live. Because I'm the righteousness of God. I'm fully identified with him and with his life. Fruit of this righteousness is peace with God. I love what Philippians chapter 3 says. We'll look at verse 7, start in verse 7. It says this, Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Church, as we pursue living out what Christ has called us to be, his righteousness. I pray that your efforts would lean on no one else or nothing else except Christ. And that like Paul says, that your righteousness would come through faith and depend on faith. That it would not depend on your moral upstanding. It would not depend on how great you can be. It would not depend on how bad you can be, but it solely depends on faith in Christ. And this is marvelous news because on your worst days, when you feel so separated, so wicked, so sinful, maybe like a disappointment, the Lord has ceased to view you that way and views you as his beloved son and daughter, because that is the way that he views Christ, as his righteous, holy, beloved son. And so may righteousness not be this outdated word, but would it be a Christ-centered marker of your identity? And as we embrace this identity and grow to believe it from faith to faith, I pray that it would affect your behavior as you live out from his goodness 
from his peace, and from his security. Let's pray as we close and transition into communion.